I couldn't be religious and gay. It was impossible. I was being marketed as some sort of like teenage it girl. When a girl kissed me on my 18th birthday, a whole other world opened up to me. I was a minor nuisance. Eight Australians will tell you about the choices that have led them to unexpected places. These are some of the stories you will hear on Let Me Tell You, a podcast where real people tell incredible real stories. Look for Let Me Tell You and follow wherever you get your podcasts. It's heartbreaking. I mean, when you come up with the worst thing you can imagine and then someone does it, it's, it's, you know, it's terrible. So we are, you know, often unfortunately relevant. You don't own me, I'm not your property, so take a shifty little bitty eye over me. And also, in terms of a sex scene, it's a pretty comfortable one. No one has take off their clothes. Welcome to Eyes on Gilead, our weekly podcast dedicated to The Handmaid's Tale. There is a lot going on in this show, and we think it helps to talk it out after every episode drops on SBS and at SBS On Demand. But as we rapidly race towards the finale of Series 2, we've got a special episode, because whereas we normally have specific questions about a particular episode, we're going behind the scenes of The Handmaid's Tale this week and going one-on-one, or (laughs) three-on-one, The Handmaid's Tale showrunner, Bruce Miller. He's going to be here for an extended interview where we're just going to get into the nitty-gritty and ask what it's like to run this incredible show. I'm Fiona Williams and I manage our online coverage of movies and TV here at SBS. And I'm joined by my colleagues and fellow resistors, Natalie Handley, Managing Editor of SBS Life. Hi. And Haley Island, Content Programmer at SBS On Demand. Oh my God, I'm quietly (laughs) hyperventilating over here. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I've been looking forward to this, but also quietly terrified. (laughs) All right, without any further ado, let's get Bruce Miller on the line. All right. Hey, everyone, you're on with Bruce. Thank you so much. Hello. Hello, Bruce. Hello. Hello. Bruce Miller, thank you so much for joining us on Eyes on Gilead. We're more than a little bit obsessed with your show, (laughs) we have to say. (laughs) So it's a bit of a thrill. I'm very happy to be here. (laughs) Yeah, we love it. So uh, we are coming off the birth of baby Holly, you know, that episode that uh, that aired so dramatically last week. That was incredible and broke new ground for the way we see birth on screen, really. I mean, we haven't seen anything like it. (laughs) And given the season has built up to it, we've heard you describe it prior to it going to air as a difficult scene. But now that we've seen it, can you talk us through, you know, building up to the birth of baby Holly and just what your intentions were and, and how you executed it? Well, I think we just wanted to kind of uh, make the pregnancy as real as possible, as grounded and real as possible, because the world is so strange that sometimes you have to, everything else has to be very normal and relatable because the world of Gilead is so weird and, and kind of unfathomably cruel and kind of surprisingly awful. So I think all the way through uh, for our whole staff and also especially me and Lizzie and, and Dana um, and all the directors we use during the year, you just want to make sure it feels real. And luckily, almost everybody either had had children of their own or, or their spouses had had children or their partners had had children. And so there was a lot of discussion about making it a version of real life, not a version of another TV show. But it really was, I mean, it's all Lizzie, Lizzie and Dana. I mean, you know, we wrote the scene, but I think it was only Dana and one of our DPs, Zoe, and Lizzie in the room. So three women. And, you know, that's what you get when you say make something cool and make it real. And Lizzie just, I mean, she exhausted herself. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, she's, and she's 
you know, I can say I've never seen anything like it with Lizzie every day, but this was a stunning performance. Yeah, we were exhausted watching it too. <laughs> we were right there, right there with her. <laughs> Hi, Bruce. My name's Haiti. It's fantastic to speak to you today. I wanted to touch on the season two narrative arc. We've been making some wild predictions about the characters that are always off and it's really hard to know what direction each episode is going to take. So I'm interested to understand if the season two story arc was clear in your head going in or if it could have gone several ways. By the time we started writing, it was pretty clear in my head. You know, I started to think about season two about halfway through season one, just because you have to in order to build a finale to one season. You can't build yourself into a corner and then, because then you're mad at yourself, you know, when the next season starts, who are those dumb writers that got me into trouble like this? And it's you. So you have to uh, think about the season to come. But I think, yes, I had the narrative arc and there wasn't very many places that it fell off track. It basically kind of came out the way that I had thought it was and the way that we had talked about from the beginning. And I listened to your podcast and I enjoyed it very much. And I listened to you guys. I love listening to you guys make bad predictions. Oh. <laughs> uh, but uh, I love it. But it's funny because almost always the thing that happens in the show is the thing that probably would happen. That's the thing that makes it hard to predict because we're so used to television where the thing that probably would happen almost never happens. <laughs> um, but, you know, if she is, if she escaped from the house, She's in Gilead. The chances that she'd get away when the entire army of Gilead is in place to keep people like her from getting away, she wouldn't get away. Mm -hmm. So uh, the arc, we really try to figure out just by saying, okay, what would really happen next? And, and sometimes those things are awful. And it's the same thing we did with the birth, which is we just filmed a birth. And it was kind of surprising because that's not usually what happens. But, you know, we weren't inventing what, what Lizzie was doing. You know, a lot of the show and one of the reasons it ends up being so hard to predict is that it very much follows the odds of what would happen. Mm. Hi, Natalie here. Hi, Natalie. Hi. Considering that you plan it so far in advance, it has been absolutely amazing how much the storyline has sort of mirrored what's going on in the US at the moment. How have you sort of responded to that? And I'm kind of I'm thinking really about that scene with June and Hannah and when they were separated and it happened, it aired in the same week that the news was just filled with the child separations in like the US border. So have you just been watching that stunned? Yeah, I've been very surprised. I mean, it's heartbreaking. I mean, when you come up with the worst thing you can imagine and then someone does it, it's, it's you know, it's terrible. So we are, you know, often unfortunately relevant. Um, and I would love our show to kind of, be irrelevant. That would be really awesome for me. So it's a very strange feeling, especially when things that you shoot, you see basically a version of that on the news. You see a version of, you know, a woman like Moira, you know, an African-American woman running across a field into Canada from America. I mean, that, after we filmed that scene from the finale, we saw I saw the same thing on TV, I mean, in Canada. So it's funny because I don't think we have any crystal ball we're just kind of news junkie people and we're extrapolating out and also trying to, as I said, what would really happen. And that's the problem is that since we're trying to stick in a world of possibilities, sometimes we land on a world of reality. But mostly it's sickening. I mean, because you see it filmed and you talk to so many experts about 
how traumatic it is for the children. I mean, we talked to the UN, we talked to other non-governmental organizations about what exactly that interaction would be like. What's that reunion feel like in the real world when a refugee gets reunited with their child, they've been separated. You know, we went through chapter and verse and a lot of it is, I mean, some of it is word for word what this woman told us. So it's really accurate to that. And you know, because you talk to these people about how terrible it is, and then you see it happening. It's just, it's awful. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't wish it on anybody's country. In the wake of the Me Too movement, what responsibility do you feel as a, a male showrunner of, a, of such a female-centric show? I think more nudity is really what I think. <laughs> um, no, I'm just kidding. What do the um, guys think of the, uh, <laughs> the girls in Gilead? Yeah, you know. Yeah, what do the guys think of Gilead? Um, <laughs> you know, it, it was always it was such a favorite book of mine, and it was the point of view was really one of the reasons it was such a great book. I mean, I loved seeing the world through Offer's eyes so intimately and getting to know her the way that she thought and what she saw and some things were puzzling and I could read the book over and over again and never really figure it out. All that stuff was great. So in some ways, the thing that attracted me to the book was offered it in her voice. But, you know, I'm a guy, you know, I don't walk through the world as a woman. And so you have to surround yourself by people who do, because there are things you just don't know. So, you know, our writing staff is mostly women. You know, our directors are more than half women. Our pilot director was Reed Morano. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've been really lucky that we have very smart, stubborn, outspoken women, very creative, you know, that's what you want. You want people who are going to have very strong opinions. And we have, you know, quite a number. So you know, people aren't, don't feel like they're representing their whole gender by being the only woman in the room or the only woman in the camera department. So, you know, the fact that we have kind of gone beyond diversity to kind of some sort of saturation, I think makes it a lot more effective. You end up getting a lot more realistic answers when you have a group of women saying, this is what it feels like to get your period, and they're all fighting with each other because none of them agree what it feels like. So then you get a much more variance of opinion and you get a lot more accurate that way. But I think you have to buttress yourself wherever you're weak, you know, in my job. And, you know, I work for ER and I'm certainly not a doctor. You know, people write for legal shows. You surround yourself with lawyers. And this is the same thing. You know, you want to rely on your writing skill and your empathy as a human being and your the women in your life who you know intimately. And then you actually have to keep looking for more input, mm -hmm. more people who know better and can express themselves better. And also, honestly, people who the writer's room, you know, you kind of say something, but that's not the end. You, you know, someone is telling a very intimate story about sexual assault. They have to be also willing to trust people and allow them to ask questions, mm -hmm. which is the hardest part. Because unless we can really dig something apart, we can't understand it. And so, you know, most of the people I work with, we've all worked together for a very long time. We're, we're close. We trust each other. And so that's how you can kind of get into the more painful discussions where no one feels like anybody's just being curious or purient, but they're asking the questions because they want to understand. Hmm. I would say as a viewer, you can actually really tell that women are doing the writing, that they're behind the camera. Like, I think that influence is really noticeable and I really appreciate it. Um, thank you. And of course, Elizabeth Moss is really the center of that. I forgot to mention her, but she's, you know, an EP on the show, an executive producer on the show with me and Warren Littlefield. We're all partners. She's extraordinarily experienced, more experienced than any of us at television. She's been doing it since she was six. 
she is a little bit talented. And she <laughs> also is just such a smart, you know, she's the most incredibly lovely human. I feel so lucky to work with her. She's just a pleasure. I mean, she's super funny. She's smart. She's caustic. She swears all the time. She's everything you want in a business partner. But also she is very outspoken about things that don't ring true to her as a woman. 50% of the time, there's stuff that was written or suggested by another woman, but that doesn't matter if it doesn't ring true. You know, it isn't like, mm-hmm. well, if another woman says it, it has to be true. And so that, then you get the good discussion. And I think that that friction really is what makes it interesting, you know, is having – and me on, on another side saying, listen, just as a viewer, that makes sense to me and the other doesn't make sense to me. So I, I, I don't know which one's more common, and I don't want to go out and do a survey. It's because it's not a democracy on television where you kind of majority rules and everybody's emotions are what most people would feel. You want them to be individualized. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that what Lizzie brings is both a very intelligent, dramatic mind, but also a super savvy actor's mind. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, what are some... Um character moments or story moments that did result in the change, say that maybe, you know, maybe not disagreed on, but um, something that you had envisaged a certain way, but actually in acting it out didn't quite work out. So you changed a point of view. Is, is there anything that you can elaborate on? Every single thing that you see, it's happening. <laughs> so, um, I mean, it, it, you know, the, the collaboration between me and I'm very lucky with my cast. I mean, they, they are to a person, not at all crazy and lovely and intelligent and committed to the show and show up on time and no other lines and are absolutely, you know, like voracious in terms of tearing their scenes apart. And they're lovely and funny and, you know, no one takes it too seriously. I know that sounds strange, but when you work on a show where it is so serious, the mm-hmm. the, the, the writer's room and the set have to be a little more loose and fun because of that. I was actually wondering, because the material is so dark, what is the environment like on set? It is the opposite of that. The example uh, I can think of is in the very first episode that we shot with Reed Morano directing, we had to do our first ceremony. And it's described in the book, but not when you actually are trying to do it, it's like someone describing a gymnastics routine. Mm-hmm. You know, you're like, okay, well, I don't know exactly how that's going to work. And so, <laughs> you know, we they had a private rehearsal, which is what you do when there's going to be something sensitive or nudity, you know, it's closed rehearsal. So no one but the director usually and the actors are on set. So, you know, they were going to go in there and, you know, and I'm, you know, the showrunner, so I'm allowed to, but certainly I give everybody their privacy. So they go in there and all we hear for like 10 minutes is like high pitched seventh grade giggling instead of like, oh, they're in there working on the big serious scene. It was all just kind of, okay, well, do we need to put the bed up on boxes? And where does Lizzie sit? How does this, I mean, it was hilarious. And, and, you know, it ends up being like Twister, you know, and, and, and you have to figure all that out. And a lot of that was just Reed's directing was very fun and matter of fact. And the actors were so lovely and gentle and respectful of each other. And also in terms of a sex scene, it's a pretty comfortable one. No one has to take off their clothes. (laughs) You know, no one has to guess. No one has to do all these things that make it more difficult. You Mm -hmm. know, acting's hard. Naked acting is even more hard. And Mm -hmm. so the set is, even when we're doing heavy stuff, is respectful and fun. And, you know, everybody loves the fact that they're doing good, hard, complicated work and important work, but no one feels like they have to sit around and mope. It's not that kind of place. We luckily, and I think we appreciate it more than most people, don't live in Gilead. Mm. So you don't want to you know, bring it home. You want to leave it at work. 
I'm relieved to hear that the cast and crew don't need therapy after shooting an episode. I didn't say that, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) How have you approached depictions of race differently to Margaret Atwood's novel? Because they are very different. Yes, they are. And it was a big discussion at the beginning between me and Margaret and between me and the producers. You know, and there were a couple of factors. You know, in a book saying it's an all-white world, which is what it is in the novel, you only say it once. It isn't really in your face every paragraph you read. But if you watch it on TV, it's weird. It just doesn't look like our world if it's mm-hmm. all, you know, white people. It just it doesn't look like, you know, looking out the window here, you know, in, in Sherman Oaks, California. It doesn't look like that. So you wanted to reflect the real world. And the first reason that is, is because it makes it scarier. If it doesn't feel like a real world, it isn't scary. Mm -hmm. So everything is done for that reason. It's not done just for fun or to try to be persnickety about it. It's done because it it's done because it makes it scary. So in Margaret's book, all the people of color were shipped off to uh, you know, they either went back to Africa or some of them went to a reservation in, you know, Nebraska where they were supposed to grow corn or something. And it was implied that, you know, certainly a lot of them were just dispensed with. Uh, but I talked to Margaret about it and, you know, a TV show is longer and more visual than a novel, obviously. And also just the, the world has changed just a little bit in the time since her book. And we talked about how interracial adoptions in the U S have gone way, way up because of international adoptions. Um, so people, I mean, I don't know anybody who doesn't know someone who doesn't have a child of a different race. It's just, um, but also I live in Los Angeles in a bubble. So, you know, you try to kind of think about how the world works. So I think initially we, it was hard to kind of come up with what's the difference between making a TV show about racists and making a racist TV show. And it, in, in fact, in execution, they look kind of alike, you know, and so we cast in a colorblind way. And we had, you know, up until the last few people, you know, we we had people of every color up for every role. I mean, it was, you know, and lots of the reasons people fall out is they get other jobs, not because you decide not to cast them. I mean, it almost is always availability, you know, when you you get down to the end and you're taking your list of 10 people you like and turning into a list of three and then one. The way you knock people off the list is usually, well, they're not available anymore. But Moira, you know, uh, Mm. the... um, now I can't remember. Samira, Samira came in. Yeah, Samira amazing. came in and read, and she just was Moira. And and I had no thought about Moira being black or white or young or old. You know where she was, but it was just like she was Moira from the very first mm-hmm. time she opened her mouth. And and I'm thrilled because she and Lizzie are get along splendidly and it shows on screen. But that wasn't a race decision. It was just a decision on actors. So I mean, it's a difficult thing. We try to address race in addition to all the other things we address in the show, but we don't want to reach for something that isn't there or at least isn't a priority to the characters in the show because their lives are at threat and their you know, bodies are always at threat. It seems um, like most of the time it wouldn't, wouldn't be invisible, but it'd certainly be trumped by other more you know vibrant needs like staying alive. Mm-hmm. Last season, Aunt Lydia was June's main adversary and, of course, she's still very much in in the world. But this season we've seen Serena emerge as an incredibly complex villain. Now, we've reluctantly darted towards a bit of empathy on on occasion in this series. Is that madness or do you want us to sort of sustain hope that there's 
maybe a glimmer of redemption to uh, Serena Joy? Well, I normally don't like to give extra work to any Australians, but you know, Yvonne <laughs> is very good, and so it's hard to it's hard to say no. But I don't really believe in redemption. Mm-hmm. Because there's no, you know, I don't know, do people walk through the world and go, well, now I'm redeemed. Now when I go on, you know, it's all, from here I'm all clean. I don't know if it actually works in people's lives. I don't know if they think about it that way. Or it's only something you kind of impose upon a story. Like, oh, this character is going to be redeemed and then I can put them in the box of moral characters. And But I don't think our characters don't live in those boxes. So, you know, they live in the box of, you know, I'm Serena Joy. I'm going to do what I think is right colored by what I think is best for me and what, you know, what all my prejudices and my promises are. And I'm just going to figure out my way through the world um, based on being Serena. And that's the way we try to think about it. So where the ends justify the means, she will do what she needs to do. I think a lot of this is Yvonne's doing. Yvonne brings so much to that character and she's able to kind of find these little moments where you not only where you see the woman she could have been or you see the woman she was and she sees the woman she was. And so a lot of it is just because I'm so fascinated by those two actors together. They're so good together. They're mm-hmm. so interesting. And they're physically so different. You know, Yvonne is mm-hmm. so much taller than Lizzie. And all of those things make for a fascinating relationship. And also I thought, you know, the theme of the year was really motherhood. You know, that's what was going on. So the story is really about, when you get right down to it, June's trying to teach Serena how to be a mother because she's Mm -hmm. going to have to leave her kid with her. (laughs) And so although she has hopes that she's not, she figures she is. And so how do you teach Serena enough skills that she can be a mom? And so I think that that requires a certain amount of intimacy and it requires a certain amount of sympathy or at least understanding of Serena's role and her you know, her personality by Offred. So I think via Offred, we're getting to know Serena a little better. And as Offred kind of ebbs and flows with moments of sympathy for her, not that she's forgetting all the horrible things these people have done, but, you know, there are times when you have sympathy. She has sympathy for Commander Waterford. I mean, she, you know, these are human beings in the world with you. And although, you know, I think overriding 95% of the time she'd like to, you know, just slit his throat. There's other 5% of the time where you're thinking, oh, God, his life is so sad or lonely or whatever, like she was in the book, like she thought in the book. So Serena, you know, I think came to life with Yvonne the first time she came in and auditioned, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. she's been adding more and more depth to that character ever since. I mean, she completely is amazing, amazing to watch, and she just turns all that kind of blonde beauty into like incredible strength and terror it's just it's 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 amazing to watch she has been so fascinating this season i was actually wondering how you go about creating that character of serena in terms of her sort of complicated psychology like have you had any sort of outside input on that or is it all just you guys in the writers room well it's certainly us guys in the writers room plus yvonne yvonne could not be further from Serena in terms of her personality. She's the Thank most God. funny, <laughs> <We're relieved. laughs> goofy, yeah, goofy, hippie duty. She's just fantastic. And now she's, you know, very pregnant at this point in our in the summer, uh, which is very troubling when you think of what she does for them. So we got a lot of input from from her. She really helps us scene by scene, moment by moment, we go through anything that bumps her. So I think it's very much built out of the room. I, You know, I think that we just tried very hard to look at her as a normal 
woman. She's really smart. Mm -hmm. She's really ambitious. She's smarter, more ambitious, and more capable than her husband. But that wasn't really a problem. He was very supportive, and and you know she was really the front person in the family, and that was fine. But you know we try not to think of her as Serena Joy now. You try to think of how she got there, and so it's interesting that you guys say you know she's a complex character. The way we do that is by being super duper simple. Mm-hmm. I want a baby. I'll do anything to have a. I, you know, I, I I may not have said at the beginning I'll do anything to have a baby, but now that that's the only possibility I have, <laughs> out of all the things I wanted, you know, out of Gilead, the only thing left for me is a baby. That's why all her literal eggs are in that basket. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I think that before she she wanted, you know, she wanted to change the world. She wanted to save the world. She, you know, all these kind of things. But now she's been reduced to this. So all of that incredible power and personality and smarts are bearing down on this one problem and poor Alfred is getting, you know, just shit on in the process. I mean, it's just all that pressure is coming down on top of her. She is very much the one thing that stands between Serena and success and can give Serena success in this way. And I don't think you'd ever want to be either Serena's surrogate or Serena's waiter. Oh, no. I don't no, think no, either no. of those things is very much fun. No. <laughs> We've been threatened this series with the possibility that June may be sent to a new household following the birth. But from what you're saying, it sounds like everybody is invested in Serena. Is it safe to say Serena and the Waterford household are going to stick around for a while? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, Serena, yes. The Waterford household, maybe not so much. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it all the the time and effort that we've put into building these characters we've done for a reason i mean if you look at the book the book is really just a a diary a voiceover you know a a recollection of what happened and the people who she bothered putting in that recollection were people who were very important and central to her life in gilead and so if you look at it as a I don't know if you guys have read the book, but in the book, it's a bunch of cassette tapes that were found in the bo- in a box. And so that's the conceit we use on the show, that that's where this comes from. And so if, in retrospect, you're looking back, the people who populate those memories are the people who were in your life for a while, you know, and, and really impacted it. So I think that Serena is part of her life and a big part of her life and is going to remain a big part of Alfred's life, you know, as we move forward, whether or not, you know, she is in that house or ends up going to another house. Those guys, I think, are linked through both motherhood and the sacrifices they decided to make together. Yeah, right. All right. A bit of food for thought in that one. <laughs> I'm interested. How do you balance the number of wins and losses that you give June, sort of, you know, just within an episode, but also over, across the arc of the series? You know, we're here for all of it, but how do you sort of map out... <laughs> It's a win for June this week, not so much next week. I try not to think about it that way. I mean, I'm, I am so attached to her that anytime anything little and bad happens, I'm like shattered for a week. So, you know, when Same. I have to see those dailies, with, it's just I can't take it. I'm such a, a wimp when it comes to that kind of stuff. But I feel like any episode where June's alive at the end is such a huge victory. <laughs> like a huge victory. Yeah, but don't you think, I mean, her, at the beginning of the season, she was like, all I want to do is I'm going to fucking survive. Yeah. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to survive. Not, you know, that's not a grand plan, but boy, in Gilead, it's a huge victory. So I think that, you know, you want to look at it as she lived and, or she yeah. lived through this. She dodged this bullet. And so I don't really think of it, you know, and the other thing I think of as a win is really that 
you know, Offred lives in Gilead, and even in that society, that strict, violent, cruel, kind of just blindly cruel society, she's able to affect things and change and make the world a little better for her child or for herself or pull some levers of power or get a little freedom and stuff like that. That's a huge victory, and it certainly says to me, living in our country and the situation we're going through right now, we should be able to get off our asses and do something. If June can affect her world, that world that seems completely, completely unaffectable by someone in her position, and she does. She's very smart, and she's persistent, and she knows how to jump on an opportunity, and she understands what people need and what they want. And, you know, she's clever and she's persistent and she's patient and she's all of these things. In addition to being a super smart, incredibly strong, brave woman, she's also a lot of other, you know, she she brings a lot of lot else to the table. And I'm just blown away by her ability to get through the day and absolutely get to the end of the night and have relationships you know she has a love affair with nick i mean who would have said it was she was never you know i would have bet she'd never have sex again she I certainly know, never see her daughter I'm... again or moira again <laughs> and she's seen all of those things I'm, actually, yes. I'm so glad you brought that up because we've sort of really appreciated those little bits of hope that june gets here and there and definitely nick yeah. is a big part of that and so he sort of has emerged as the love interest for her this season but I'm sort of curious about what the discussion is behind the scenes. Is there any sort of Team Luke or um, Team Nick happening in the writers' room? No, I mean I don't. I don't, I don't think so. It's very much Team June. That, um, I like that. you know, That's nice. and also I think that she, you know, no, I don't think Luke would begrudge her Nick. I mean, he probably wouldn't be super happy. And certainly, <laughs> Nick doesn't begrudge her Luke. I think that the fact that she found some comfort in this place and found someone to connect with and some intimacy and ability, at least for a minute, to be herself, I think Luke would understand. If she had to choose between two boys, I think we're on a very interesting episode of Gossip Girl. I don't imagine I'm getting there, but if she had to choose... You know, I would say, you know, given what she's been through, I would say, fuck it, live with both men. I don't care. You yeah, do whatever saying. you want to do. Yeah. I, you know, it's, I'm totally here you know, for that for season you. as God well. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, have, have as much good sex as you want to have. You know, you are allowed. So, you know, I, I feel like if she has a excess of riches in the man department, she totally deserves it. Um, and she does they're both absolutely lovely they are lovely actors and such interesting men they're so smart they they have so many things going on outside of work and movies they're directing and also stuff and they work with lizzie they respect her so much and it's just like watching two amazing tennis players play you know when when lizzie goes toe-to-toe with yvonne or toe-to-toe with ot in those scenes the scenes with OT, I mean, those guys aren't really married, you know. They they just are work together. But boy, I believe that they're married, <laughs> you know, in those scenes. Yeah. Um, and I believe they're Hannah's parents. Yeah. Um, and they're not Hannah's parents. Hannah has other parents, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, look, we could probably monopolise all of your day because we <laughs> could just throw yeah. questions at you all the time. But um, this is an open invitation. We would love to have you back any time, you know, maybe during the third series. Thank you, Bruce Miller. It's been such a treat to talk to you and we are loving your show. Thank you so much for coming on Eyes on Gilead. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoy your, your podcast, so please uh, keep going. I am listening. <laughs> <laughs> no, no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> all right, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Okay, take care. Bye. Bye-bye. So that was The Handmaid's Tale showrunner, Mr Bruce Miller. 
fantastic. Like I'm just I know, right? Breath out. Did, yes. we scoop, did we get a scoop there with the Waterfords? I don't know. I'm going to call it a scoop. Yeah, me too. I think we, yeah, I think we did. Yeah. I think you might be having some regrets now going, I still have said too much. Uh, oh, here he is on line one. Sorry, Bruce. We're keeping him. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that was great. I would have kept him talking all day, but hopefully that he'll take us up on that open invitation. And if I, you're listening, yeah. Bruce, we'll have you back anytime. <laughs> Because I have been fascinated about what happens to Serena and Fred because they seem to hate each other so much, but they also are tied together. But, <laughs> yeah, so what he said there is sort of, sort of sending my mind spinning off in all directions mm. going, oh, yeah. if Serena stays but the Waterford House doesn't, what does it look like? Is June moving next door in there? <laughs> <to> the <back laughs> <fence. laughs> Maybe June and Serena are going to go on a little road trip together. <laughs> What is this world without Fred in it? I think we're talking about that way back when there was the uh, explosion and we were, mm. we were asking what would happen if Fred was out mm. of the picture, what kind of power Serena would have and mm. yeah. I don't know, it, mm, oh, lots see, to think about. Yeah, and he did bring up, you know, the end of the book, which is the tapes that and which are being studied in an academic class of the future, like Beyond Gilead, and that's kind of the irony of the book there, that she's useful in terms of viewing this man in history with this Commander mm. Waterford and, yeah, like her take on him, which is, <laughs> no, it's about her story actually, but, <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. So living in the world now beyond the ending of the book but before the epilogue, so... This yeah. could, you know, he has talked about going on 10 series. <laughs> you could because we've just got future, future. I know. Like I think, like, the cassettes. as you said, we could talk to him all day because he just knows so much about the show and the book and the conversations he's had with Margaret Atwood. Like he just knows it inside and out. Like they've thought about everything. So, yeah, it was quite a treat to get to talk to him. Mm. Mm. So that obviously is a very special episode and uh, thanks to SBS Publicity and Wasco for helping uh, tee that up. We'll be back for the big finale of The Handmaid's Tale. Boo, it's in episode 13. I'm not, I'm not ready. ready to say goodbye. I'm sorry, no. I'm not. Um, thanks for listening. Um, we hope that was a treat for you guys as well. So thanks to my co-hosts and fellow interviewers, Natalie and Heidi. It's a pleasure. And yes. we love hearing your comments about this show and about the podcast, so feel free to leave feedback and give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts from. If you'd like to reach out on Twitter and you've got some other theories and questions and feedback, uh, you can find me at anything but Fifi. Natalie, where can we find you? I'm at Natalie Hambly, which is N-A-T-A-L-I-E-H-A-M-B-L-Y. For more Handmaid's coverage, you can head to SBS Guide, which is sbs.com.au slash guide, where I do some episode recaps and we give you some recommendations for other things to watch as you await the next episode of The Handmaid's Tale. In fact, just one more for series finale. Episode 13 of The Handmaid's Tale is going to premiere on SBS On Demand at 5pm on Thursday and screen on SBS Australia on Thursday evening. Eyes on Gilead is produced by Dan Barrett and edited and mixed by Jeremy Wilmot. If she has an excess of riches in the man department, she totally deserves it. Until next time, don't let the bastards grind you down. <laughs>